Welcome to the Higher Potential Living Podcast, where we discuss improving quality of life by exploring mind, body, and spirit through a mindful lens. Here's your host, Jason Marichello. Hello, and thanks for joining once again. On this episode, I had the pleasure of speaking with Gary Diggins. And Gary is a musician, composer, poet, author, educator, healer, and all-around great guy. (laughs) Gary has worked for over three decades as an expressive arts therapist. His work combines counseling, mindful practices, and music as medicine. As an educator, Gary has taught in the expressive arts all around the world, but you know, just like trying to describe a song in words does not do it justice, ultimately I don't feel like words alone can really describe the gifts that Gary shares with this world but we'll do our best. In this episode, we had a great conversation diving into the ways that music, vibration, and ultimately compassion can break down a lot of the barriers that we have and help us heal ourselves and maybe potentially the world. I know that sounds a little big, but I hope you enjoy this conversation and maybe find some aha moments along the way. Good morning, Gary. Thanks for joining me today. It's my pleasure. I'm excited to have you on here. You and I have been uh, longtime friends, and a lot of people probably don't know. You were actually also the officiant at my my wedding as well. And maybe we'll talk about how how even unique that was simply for having you uh, be a part of it. But today I'm excited to dive into the realm of vibration and sound. And I see you in my mind, first and foremost, as as my go-to guy when it comes to all of that kind of stuff. So before we get too far in, I was wondering if you could share with us a little bit about where your passion for all of this uh, came from, because your your path seems so different um, from my experience of what being a musician is all about and everything. So I'd love for you to kind of jump in at that point and get us rolling. Great. Yeah. It's one of my favorite stories because it provides a kind of template, I think, for how people are called into different vocations or lifestyles. Mm. Uh, So I grew up in a musical family, uh, but like a fish swimming in the water. I just assumed everybody had music and the arts in their family life. Um, So it was very natural for me to study music and then to move into the performing side of that. Uh, I was very fortunate in the period of the late 60s to work with a great uh, horn band. I was fronting it as the singer. And because we were so different, we got lots of gigs. I worked with everybody from Alice Cooper to uh, Ted Nugent, who (laughs) advertised himself as the loudest guitarist on the planet. And I loved uh, the experience of sharing music with with audiences, uh, regardless of the size and the context. But there is a business side of music. The entertainment industry is just that. It's an entertainment industry. And I wasn't quite at home with the stuff that went with that. Mm. So during that period of upheaval, not knowing exactly what I wanted to do, I was fortunate enough to meet a man, a Colombian shaman, who in the dodgiest area of Detroit would have a small grouping of us over and in his uh, limited English, introduced me to the way that sound has been used pan-culturally in rituals and ceremonies. And I was absolutely taken by the, the sensitivity of that, the wonder of that, and realized that uh, I was just in the shallow end of the pool. So I needed to not only find um, a kind of academic stream that understood this, but more particularly begin to reach out in an interdisciplinary way to uh, mentors and people who came from that tradition of music as medicine. 
So that was really the initiation of what's been a long and ongoing journey in which sometimes I feel myself to be student and sometimes feel myself to be mentor. I love that phrase, music as medicine. And it's interesting, a couple of things that I'm just taking away from that uh, intro you gave there is that idea of taking this the for I don't want to say taking it for granted, but this idea that, you know, everyone must be introduced to music in some way. And I feel like we are uh, yes. in such a, a very visceral way from hearing our mother's heartbeat and all this like music that's around us. But I know my family in particular, we had no grasp of, of music. And I can almost like remember all the big turning points where I had those aha moments, mostly in my teens of like, oh my goodness, this is what it feels like to be in key. This is what it feels like when resonance lines up and all this different kind of stuff. And it's really, it really is almost like a mystical world when you start to connect to some of that. And I compare that with like my wife, Lauren, who was brought up in such a musical family. And that was something that was ingrained in her at such a young age that again, it wasn't like she can recall where those big aha moments uh, originally came from. Mm -hmm. But when you started getting into that aspect of how this world of vibration and music has been used um, around the world, that's mm -hmm. what I think uh, really starts to dive into the music as medicine. So what was your first dive into to that as far as like cultural use of sound? Well, it grew out of this uh, encounter with the shaman. Mm. Uh, he kind of gave me a key that opened doors, which first of all, um, were a bit on the intellectual side because uh, growing up in in the Windsor, Detroit area, it's not like you could go down to Shamans Are Us and kind of find what you were looking for. Um, so I did lots of um, independent reading in that regard, but eventually uh, that led to, to travels. And I think mm -hmm. in those travels, especially to the continent of Africa, um, I witnessed firsthand how people recovered from terrible, violent, and traumatic events uh, through the collective and communal use of sounding together. Uh, they also did that uh, through playing together too, like soccer is medicine as much as music is, is medicine. It's really that act of people um, coming to literally a sound body and mind through a cooperative and collaborative process together. So when I think of uh, music as medicine, I'm often thinking of that in a kind of community context. So it's different than an individual at home uh, chanting, uh, which has its value, but there's something about that reciprocity, the giving and the receiving, the listening and the sounding and the improvising together that brings really a, a sense of vitality and resilience to people who have seen tough stuff. Yeah, for sure. And that leads me to actually when I, when I first met you, um, I, I remember my, my wife, Lauren, who you know uh, well, she and I just started dating and she was into actually playing some West African music already with uh, her father and uh, a group in the Guelph area. And she was like, you need to come to this event. This was one of the early big beats that I remember uh, were in Toronto. I think it was some sort of a, a dance studio or something like that. Yeah. And I said, okay, well, yeah, I'm open to whatever. And we went into this room and it was, this was before I guess I made my slow transition into the hippie realms. But uh, it was a room full of, I guess the best way I could put it is the most vibrant people I'd been around at that point. <laughs> and I remember you started us off and you had, I can't remember if it was a shrewdy box at that point in time, but you had a way of gathering us in a circle. And mm -hmm. right off the bat, it was almost like the energy, the anticipation in the room was palpable and mm -hmm. everyone was in a circle. And then everyone just started breathing. And then the breath turned into some sighs and some different like organic sounds. And then everyone just started, uh, for lack of a better term, sounding together. And you could see instantly 
stress melting off of people's shoulders. You could see smiles growing on people's faces. Mm-hmm. It was something I had never witnessed before in the realm of, of music. And I, I was at the time similar to you, but definitely not at the scale. I was playing in uh, small brass bands and stuff like that back then. And I'd never seen that in the realms of music that I had been involved in up until that point. So how did you get from the uh, <laughs> search of shamans are us to starting to hold these, these experiences for people? Yeah, and that's a good phrase that it's, you're holding space for people to have a collective experience, which is very different than uh, the genesis of, of my own musical education and experience, which is a performative art, right? So um, the dominant branches that we see in music, one side has to do with performing, the other side has to do with teaching people how to perform. But then there's this really older way of working with sound that is non-performative and is really intended to bring people into a sense of belonging and and creating together. So when we look to older cultures, I find that there is a kind of uh, inclusivity that is a different model than the uh, divisiveness of audience and artist or the passivity of an audience taking in what artists are are giving. In some of those older cultures, it doesn't matter if you're a a four-year-old or a 90-year-old, you have something to contribute. And so it's even beyond music. I think of it as sounding together because sounding is much more of an inclusive term than music making uh, in the same way that moving is a little more of a generous circle than dancing. So as I, as I traveled more and as I studied more, I found that there are these protocols that people uh, incorporate uh, to foster a sense of, of well-being. And a lot of that has to do with a kind of um, reference to what you were saying earlier about vibration, that there's a a way that we tap into something that goes beyond the individual composition, the individual makeup, that we suddenly find ourselves being played by music rather than playing music. That when we open ourselves to that collective experience, there's something that nobody owns. There's something that begins to move through us. Now it's important to have some people who can hold that space in a, in a trained and um, understanding way, because as you up the intensity, uh, anything can happen in that regard. So that's really been uh, a parallel focus for me is to understand um, how to create not just a safe space, but a space in which uh, risk can be taken. And I like the, what you, you mentioned there too about how there's that fine line of, I guess we're really, we're surfing the wave of chaos a little bit and being able to, someone once used the metaphor of uh, a sail ship or yeah. um, And, and the idea of if you try to fight against the wind, sometimes it could be the worst idea and it can capsize you and, you know, trying to go against this amazing force like mother nature, or in, in this example, um, what can be created through this sounding, you're, you're fighting a losing battle. But if you can learn to steer it, if you can learn to kind of um, maneuver with it, then it can be the, the thing that actually fills the sails and can drive this amazing experience. And I, I have to say that I think you, over the years of, of doing this, uh, have become one of the best facilitators of this that I've experienced. Mm-hmm. And there's something else that I think that is really important that you facilitate in this. And and you touched on it a little bit with the idea of sounding and not music is when we talk about making music, it almost, it almost triggers the ego in a way of all that intellectual stuff that comes in of how I'm supposed to sound and making sure I'm in perfect pitch and all of this kind of stuff that can kind of come into it where I've been in some amazing sounding experiences where 
you know, it's almost like the imperfections that can make it so freeing because when you get people like one of my, one of my students in particular, they like to call me a bit of a spiritual antagonist uh. <laughs> and something that I do uh, with a lot of my mindfulness students is I'll ask them to sing in front of me and watch how they clench up and watch how their body stiffens and their face goes beat red instantly. And there's something that feels so personal about lending our voice to somebody or letting them into our soul in some way. And when you get a room full of people doing this and opening their mouth wide and breaking through this conditioning of, you know, don't, uh, don't ask unless, or don't speak unless spoken to and all this kind of stuff, it, it is breaking down mental barriers. And it's so interesting to, to see. So I, I just trying to pull out a little bit more of your story of where this idea of this first, yes, you know what, I'm going to take this now from what I've seen in different parts of the world and experience in Africa. And I want to bring this to North America. Yeah. And that's a sensitive matter, isn't it? Because um, while we can defer to the wisdom and the long history and experience that come from older cultures, um, for a kid who was born in Windsor, I'm highly sensitive to the matter of cultural appropriation in that regard. So I don't want to replicate what uh, other older cultures are doing and pretend to be um, something that I'm not. Let me just say it that way. So I think there's a way to bring the contemporary context in which we live in uh, together with those, at least the, the principles and the protocols that are being practiced in those other older cultures. So one of those is that we acknowledge as humans that we're not just in a, in a collective human space, but that we are part of the larger than uh, human community. So there's a, often at the beginning of, of a ceremony or a ritual, there's a, an acknowledgement of both the seen and the unseen world. Mm -hmm. So I have found a way to do that that's non-dogmatic, that's not trampling on people's beliefs or me trying to be, as I say, something that I'm not. Um, but I do feel that when we as human beings gather, let's say in a circle or a, a configuration, if we begin from that place of listening to something beyond ourselves, mm -hmm. then it's an indication that we're ready to co-create with whatever that unnamed and best unnamed uh, energy is. But it's palpable. You know, you can feel it when people are standing uh, together that there's a kind of evocation of uh, a level almost of telepathy, if we could put it that way, that nobody knows what's going to happen. Uh, and there's a one mind, one heart, one body uh, intentionality that we're going to do something together. It, it's not that people are going to play at you or ask you to do something that you're unwilling to do, just the space has been created for you to find your voice or find your rhythm or find your sound within that space. And we'll keep that generated for sometimes upwards of, of three hours together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's beautifully put there. And I think you kind of, you, you nailed it there about there are these traditions out there and there is a lot of talk about culture appropriation and what these cultures have done. Cause I've also spent some time, as you know, uh, traveling around the world and observing some, some different cultures and the way that they practice yes. and really what it seems like they've tapped into thousands of years ago uh, up until now is that listening that you're, you're talking about. And so we don't need to appropriate a culture if we ourselves can start to tap into that deeper listening. Mm -hmm. one, of my, one of my gurus um, talked about the mantras when we talked about sounding mantras and they said the vibrations are all here. The mm -hmm. mantras are already filling this space, just not on a level that our ears can pick up. So mm -hmm. all we need to do is open our mouths and let them come out 
let the mantras come out. We don't need to create them. They're here. Just let them come out of our mouths mm-hmm. so that they could be picked up on this level. Yes. And I think that's, uh, that's what came to mind when you started talking about that deeper um, listening. Because although there are amazing traditions, like I, I know I spent some time up in uh, Arnhem Land with the Australian Indigenous people, and even the idea of using the didgeridoo as this bridging conduit between the dream time and the, the world of the spirits and you know this, this plane here and how ceremonial and how beautiful this, this expression of vibration is and the way that it's seen over there is mm-hmm. amazing. But having conversations with the elders about you know how do you feel about me, this white guy from Canada, taking the didgeridoo, bringing it back to Canada and, and teaching people about it you know, there was some mixed feelings from the majority of the elders that I interacted with. The story was just to recognize that this isn't just a hollow tube to us, that this is something deeper, that this is um, like a prayer instrument and bring that teaching in while you're playing the sounds, bring that teaching in while you're teaching technique and that they go hand in hand. And uh, I, I found that there is almost like a hunger because in our Western culture, it seems like a lot of that deeper side of, of musicality or, or sounding has been taken out of it, that it feels like the Western world wants it. It's like, there's a hunger for it. They just don't know how, or maybe it's been forgotten on how to do that deeper listening. Yes. Well put, well put. And, and as we listen to self and as we listen to other, and as we listen to the natural world, Inevitably, we're, we're then inclining an ear to the invisible, to the unseen world. And I think that's where we begin to realize that music is and has been uh, a, a great entry point into spirituality. That there's a, whether we're talking about jazz or blues or classical music, it, regardless of the genre, uh, there are those experiences at times where we're being deeply touched by this mystery, this essence. Uh, I think that's why so many people love going to uh, gospel churches, because you, you feel that there's something that's moving the congregation in, in that regard. And uh, one, of the, one of the ways that I've made that a little more accessible is to think about uh, mindfulness, that mindfulness is a very um, growing but um, accessible way for people to practice the spiritual discipline of attentiveness, of coming into the moment, of not obsessing about things from the, the past or the future, uh, and opening yourself in a curious way as to what is unfolding. And so for me, that's a nexus point between uh, what we would think of as, as the sacred or, or spiritual practices and the contemplative. So uh, music then becomes almost ecumenical in that regard that I can be in a room with people from different faiths or non-faiths or cultural backgrounds or lost cultural backgrounds. And there's a way that um, the principle of Nada Brahma begins to take uh, hold. So Nada Brahma is that Sanskrit phrase meaning the world is sound or the world is vibration. And when we actually experience that, we don't need a lot of ideology and beliefs and ideas about that uh, experience because we're, we're in it. Mm-hmm. I feel like it is, uh, in my experience with the sounding, like that is that mindfulness being in the present moment. If we think about really being in the moment that these vibrations are being created, none of that stuff exists anyway. It, it's in the, the past, it's in the future, but in the now is just the experience, the vibration. Yes. And I know for myself, like this all started for me. And one of the reasons why I want to to talk um, on this podcast about this subject is for me, it started with the recorder grade three I've ah. shared in uh, shared in some of the other podcast episodes about 
you know, the bullying that I experienced when I was in my teen years and mm. contemplation of suicide and depression and all of this kind of stuff. And it, it may sound silly to some people who are listening, but one of the things that really helped me get through those hard times was my recorder. It was the only instrument of sound that I had or that I thought that I had access to. I wasn't really using my voice at that point in time. Mm. And I would just go into my room and just start playing. It wasn't like I was playing specific songs or whatever, just closing my eyes and I would start playing. And mm. that got me through some of the toughest times in my life of just letting myself get swept in the moment of those sounds. And for a moment I could forget about, you know, what the bullies had done or said, or my fears of the future and all of this kind of stuff. And I feel like that is what was the seed that really started my whole mindfulness practice, which has developed quite a bit since then, but really, I could almost say that it saved me in, in many ways. Yes, yes. Yeah, and, and based on the power of that story that you beautifully shared, uh, we have to ask ourselves why in tough or perceived as tough economic times, uh, the arts are one of the first uh, subjects on the chopping block as, mm -hmm. as people are trying to work out budgets. I mean, when I was a teenager, I grew up in a working class and tough neighborhood in uh, Windsor, but we had a stage band, we had a concert, we had a choir, we had a drama club. So uh, kids who really came from psychologically uh, stressful situations, they had an outlet to lift their spirits. They had something in their day or in their week that just put wind in their sails. So I don't think we can ever underestimate the power for the individual and for a body of people uh, to engage in sound making, um, especially sound making that is communal in nature. That's not saying, not setting up boundaries that say, uh, well, you, you have an intonation problem, you can't sing in the choir, or you really don't have much of a sense of rhythm, therefore, <laughs> you can sell tickets to the concert band, but something that's really vast and, and based on this notion that every human being is composed of a musical intelligence. If we can walk, we can dance. If we can dance, we've got rhythm. If we can speak, we can sing. If we can, you know, on it goes in that way of saying, let's, um, let's not put barriers up, obstacles up for people approaching uh, the arts. Let's make it as uh, generous and in as inclusive as possible. Yeah. And that makes me think of, again, going back to my teen years, the music room was a safe haven. And we had an amazing uh, music teacher at that point in time, but it was that place for people who maybe seemed like outcasts because they didn't know how to express in the mm -hmm. way that society wanted them to and everything, but it was a safe place for them to come together and they could express yes. using the arts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, um, that film, Mr. Holland's Opus, um, was actually lived out in so many places that there would be these musical directors or choir directors who just had a way to inspire life skills. I mean, the, the fact of just listening together and working together and maintaining a focus. Um, yes, we're learning something about music and the John Philip Sousa marches or whatever, but more importantly, we are learning life skills that then will apply in so many uh, sectors of our society. Well, we can even we can even relate this back to uh, I know your children are in uh, the Waldorf school, and I've done some um, time teaching uh, some some drumming and different stuff in there. But to see how different that education system is, and their emphasis on the arts in a in a bigger way, and having like regular music classes and everything. How do you find it, witnessing like your own children growing up in a bit of an environment that supports that a bit more different from say maybe how mine or your education was? Well, I'm, I'm eternally grateful for what 
Rudolf Steiner embedded in, in the Waldorf uh, pedagogy, the, the appreciation for the language arts uh, as well as the musical arts uh, and integrating that into kind of a interdependent uh, approach. So kids will be singing songs while they're knitting. Uh, kids will be um, in, engaged in a long epic poem and then do artwork around that. So I think there's a way of fostering the imaginal mind in kids uh, that is much different than having their imagination uh, primed and filled in by media. Mm -hmm. So if, if you're not evoking that sense of uh, being able to create a scene in your mind, then the alternative is that you'll be spoon fed that by the Disney corporation. Mm -hmm. well, and, and to bring it into a neurological uh, field for just a moment, I know I've seen different studies that have shown as a global society that our IQ has been increasing as time goes on, but other index such as our critical thinking index and our creativity index are on a pretty steady decline simply for critical thinking because we don't think we ask google um any yeah. questions that we are uncertain of we don't spend much time contemplating right and we don't have that same platform of of creativity i i can't remember who i was talking to but uh someone it was a, a conference about parenting but someone had made mention that like boredom is one of the greatest gifts that we can give our children yeah to to harness to to develop that creativity to turn a box a cardboard box into a spaceship and all this kind of stuff right yeah i feel it's the same with the with the different arts with music and and even you know the dramatic arts and everything yes one of the things that i love uh, doing is putting a grouping of people together in a room where you have some people who have a formal training in music uh, but you have a wide swath of people who probably discounted themselves from that label. They might have been told that you don't have an aptitude, you don't have a gift. And uh, giving people an opportunity to problem solve together in the sense of improvising without any facilitation, without any instruction, to say, uh, here's the raw material, here's some instruments that we can use. Some of them are more ambient, some of them are more rhythmic, some of those will invite your voice, some of those are more melodic, um, but let's create a collective story or a composition together because now we're in that uh, area of not being dependent upon a score, uh, upon a, a conductor, uh, no one knows what's going to happen. So we lean in together and we find that something begins to unfold that is not possessed uh, by anyone. Instead, it's, uh, it's coming from that sense of listening our way into being, if we could put it that way, that we're listening ourselves into a state of... Um, collectivity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that uh, I was drawn to was it was a, a YouTube video that's been around for a while. And it's, I think if you search, everything has rhythm, it pops up. And yes, I've seen that. Yeah. It, it's, it's such a beautiful, and I would share this with uh, a lot of students when I was teaching music and mm -hmm. It takes place in West Africa, and these are traditional West African instruments using the the dunduns and the djembe. But they're showing that even outside of those traditional instruments in these cultures, that kind of this this came to my mind when you were talking about knitting and singing and all this kind of stuff, mm. where you'd see the blacksmiths using rhythm to make sure that the blacksmith apprentice weren't going to hit their hammer at the same time. So yeah. you hear this like ting 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 happening and then same thing with like grinding up the wheat or using the uh the ads to create the different instruments out of wood and all this and and music was just ingrained in everything that they were doing and it was a harmonious work environment so it was almost like they were doing what we would see as more 
I guess we can call it contemporary work, but they were using music to even make that more efficient. There wasn't any clear line between we're music making and we're we are existing in a society. It was the music helped us exist in a society. Yes, yes. I think that's so beautiful. Yeah, so from ethnomusicology standpoint, uh, around the world you find uh, field songs where people are out uh, harvesting, uh, where they're working together. There often will be these vocal um, expressions that just make the day lighter and make the, the toiling uh, less troublous. And I, I think of the rich music that then began to infuse jazz and uh, gospel music that came out of uh, those horrendous situations of people working uh, in a suffering way out in the fields, the plantation fields of the deep south. But they got through that by vocalizing together of a kind of bringing in uh, a spirit of inspiration that can make the load lighter. Mm -hmm. So I guess this is the turning point now for individuals who might be listening to this, who are in one of those, those categories that you mentioned earlier that were either told that they you know, are, are better off keeping their, their lips sealed or not making sound or not picking up a drum or not doing any of this kind of stuff. If they're listening to this and thinking, okay, well, that's reserved for that hippie dippy um, music festival type people and all that kind of stuff. Like what are ways that, that that demographic can start to tap into what we're talking about? Mm. Well, I've, I've had lots of experience in that regard because I did uh, corporate work with a, a friend from Scotland and we, we took our process uh, around the world, different places, but we're often working with people who came from uh, organizations, uh, especially in the gas and oil industry. Mm. So in a room, I might be working with somebody who's an office manager sitting next to a bloke who's been out on the North Sea on an oil rig, mm. right? And they would come in the room and I'd have all these music uh, instruments lying about in a, in a circle. And this would be day one of often what was a five day experience. And I, I could hear the resistance. I could hear the smarmy remarks, you know, um, and those same participants at the end of the week would be saddling up to me and saying, hey, where do you think I could get one of those bongo drums? <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> So uh, it's there. I think it's really a matter, again, of creating a, a space where people don't feel they're going to be shamed or centered out to really make... Uh, make it as inclusive as possible and to often start with things that are uh, within uh, reach. So all of us breathe and uh, making breath sounds together, or this is a practice that a person can do on, on their own, uh, is a kind of rhythmical um, but also eventually vocal experience because breath can lead to humming, humming can lead to a form of uh, chant, chant can lead to a form of, of singing, uh, singing can lead to uh, an expression of uh, sound that might be related to grieving and lamenting or raging, you know, the stuff that we, we've been holding in our bodies. So now we're, uh, we're inching into the psycho-spiritual realm which has so much application, both in the individual and the collective sense. I worked in uh, Uganda with uh, young people who had been abducted by the uh, LRA and forced to do awful things, atrocities, uh, kill or be killed. And then eventually they escaped or were captured and they lived about 200 of them in this space called Hope North. And uh, while they had their uh, traditional uh, music that they could rely upon, 
I began to introduce some experiences that were outside of their culture, just to disrupt, uh, as you were saying before, to be an agitator to the expected and habitual. So we would do things that were um, much more improvised. And I could see that um, once we got past that shyness, and once we got it clear that we weren't going to be judging one another, there were wonderful and cathartic experiences that began to come out of the, the collective as well as the, the individual. So this, this awaits us, you know. Uh, what we do need, however, are experienced teachers and elders and facilitators who can um, coax and romance people into uh, an experience that nine times out of 10 or 99% is going to, to bring uh, what we call anxiolytic, uh, an experience of lowering duress or stress into the, the whole. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's the, the work that you were talking about there. I remember when I, I think I first met you, you were, it was still in the past, but it was a, a lot more um, recent and hearing some of your stories about sitting people across from each other who in other circumstances may have been trying to shoot at each other mm-hmm. and having them work through some of their grievances completely non-verbally and using using sound, using drums and to think of how powerful a tool this can be to to again to try to communicate things that we may not have words for. Yes. And, and, and even when we're talking about that's, that's with other people, but on a personal level, like how much stuff do we have inside of us that we know we have tension that we're holding on to? Mm-hmm. We know we have trauma, we know we have grief, but we can't put it into words, but maybe we can put it into a scream or maybe we can put it into a hum or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I'm not, I, I don't know too much of the pseudoscience that kind of comes into play with some of this, but I do know experience. And I've seen, I've, I've uh, done some drumming for some amazing um, West African shamans that have come over to uh, Canada to hold different r- rituals and retreats. And I remember being part of a grief ritual and it was the first time I'd been involved in something that profound, but I was just doing some background drumming. And it was a completely sober event. There was no, uh, I guess, sober in in a relative term, but there were no substances being used. But to see what was coming out of people, the the sobbing, the weeping, the convulsions, like all the stuff that was coming out just from sounding. It's like there was a dam in their throat that not only held back their voice, but it held back pain from years gone by. It held back all of this unspoken regret and trauma and all this and just simply by opening the mouth to see what's there it was tapping into some deep stuff but like you say without maybe a facilitator or um, someone who knows how to handle the aftermath of that you could also be playing with some with some pretty hot fire there yes yes and and so there is this growing need i think for individuals who understand how to hold space well and to not set up expectations. So there is this um, common scenario that happens when somebody comes to me as a client um, where they feel I'm going to do something to them that's going to bring a change in their mood or in their energy. Um, And I make it very clear from the beginning that that's a very... Uh, passive approach and it sets up a power differential that I'm not comfortable with because then I'm in some elevated space and the person is expecting me to do something to them which can lead to either uh, becoming dependent on me or becoming disappointed by me. (laughs) So the alternative to that is to say look you're front and center. Um, I'll support you. I'll work with you. I'll bring some of the user-friendly tools to the table. But this is your experience of how to foster well-being through the expressive arts. And it's not about 
good or better or that sucked or any of those. It's about that mindfulness practice that says, let's come into the moment together and let's be cognizant of what's going on. So for some individuals, it starts out really small, like with a breath or, or just a gasp. And very quickly, uh, you can be in the territory of somebody's biography where they've been told to keep their mouths shut, what you saw stays here in the house. Um, and there's this kind of phonophobia, the fear of speaking or the fear of sounding that's embedded in many people's lives from traumatic things that have happened in the family context. So to begin to uh, express that, sometimes it's better uh, to be vocal versus verbal. So if a person's explaining their story, uh, that's one thing, but they can stay clear of the emotions by doing that. It's just like you're, rep you're reporting versus, um, so tell me, how did that feel to see what was happening with your sister by your father? Uh, tell me the, the feeling of that without words. And so a sob, a scream, um, a whimper, all of those sounds uh, speak volumes in, in a context of, of sound work. That's brilliant. Yeah, one of the, uh, I can't remember which one it was, if it was the body keeps the score, or I've read a number of um, psychological studies, and it did talk about how we can get very used to telling a script about an experience. And if we look at the neuroactivity, when we're telling a script, when we're regurgitating a script, it actually taps into a different part of our memory than where the actual experience itself lives. And so ah. a psychological tool that can be used sometimes, if you can tell that someone is just in that script telling, is a therapist might ask a completely um, different question that maybe isn't in their script, like what color were the individual's shoes while they were doing this to you? And it requires the individual to tap into it in a different way because they just haven't thought of it. Mm -hmm. uh, in that way before and it, it it really it sounds like that's kind of the space that's being created is like the sound can be this direct conduit to to exactly what the the experience was and yes. i love that piece of of not having the expectations too because for so many this is uncharted this is uncharted territory and right. i know with meditation same thing there's been this like build up that at the end of a meditation i should feel relaxed and mm -hmm. like okay well maybe, maybe if that's what your, your meditation is, but say you've been holding on to, we've had before in the yoga studio, uh, someone who's had so much tension held onto in their back. Uh -huh. that when they actually released the tension, they went into muscle spasms and they actually uh -huh. had to leave on a stretcher. Right. Wow. So you never know when you start diving into letting go of years and years of tension, stress, trauma. I always say that we're all walking bags of trauma. Mm -hmm. Um, when we start getting into some of that, what can come up? Yes. And yet we often place these expectations. Yeah, and we're so interconnected in that regard that the circumstances under which a person experienced loss will be particular to that person. Mm -hmm. But loss begets grief. So the commonality and universality of, of grief work is really uh, upped when we're working in a collective way like that. I, I love the kind of intimacy of one-on-one -on -one work where I am hearing a person's story and we are doing something of sounding to get that uh, emotional component out. But when you bring a grouping of people who all people have experienced loss. So when you bring a grouping of people under the, the thematic umbrella of, of loss and lament and grief, we find that people are in different stages of that experience depending on their major losses. And so some were, are sounding with that sense of uh, the spring of their life, that something of renewal is coming, whereas somebody else has just lost a loved one or, or something precious in their life, and they're numb, they're without words. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the guidance might be to... Uh, contribute or participate in a way that's just right for you because the individual might want to sit there all night in the, in the 
sounding and the lamenting and the sobbing and the singing and the grieving and the celebrating, and that will be their um, that will be their medicine, as this term that we're using uh, for that evening. Next week they might come, and who knows what they'll experience? Maybe there's a a rage because of the unfairness of life that took their loved one. So all of these emotions that often we're trying to talk through uh, get a chance to be explored and expressed in a much more in-depth way, I feel, when we uh, take away words. And now we're using the media of our voices or the media of uh, user-friendly instruments. So just being aware of uh, our time coming to a close, I'm a couple of things I want to make sure we touch on before we close yeah. out. Um, I want to get to the, the books that you've um, written in just a moment, but I'm curious for someone who is looking to try different experience of expression and say they find uh, someone like you, I, I'd almost say someone like you, but there's no one like you, but say, let, let's say someone came to you Yes. What could a what could an expression of a session look like? Well, that's all changed radically with right, COVID sure. scenario, right? So um, prior to that, um, I would usually meet a person one on one. There would be really a kind of uh, mindfulness component at the beginning that's exploring what's happened since I last saw you, uh, what's been difficult, what support do you have? So I'm really asking probing questions that are for the benefit of that individual, that client to uh, be cognizant of. And then based on that prima materia, that raw material, we would then go into either an interactive session where a person's making sound with me or in some cases, um, I use a device. It's, think of it as a as a um, a glorified hammock. It's called a binoc. It's suspended, and the person lies down, and I'm making sound, impressionistic sound for them uh, to go more into the interior and to be with the the feelings, the images, uh, whatever surfaces in that kind of lucid dreaming way, and then time permitting. We might either talk about that after, or a person might go home from the session and journal about that. Uh, they might have some takeaways to practice at, at home uh, that really enables them to explore thematically what's up for them. So that's the, the kind of individual process. And then collectively, I was working um, with a one-year training program to give people some of the skills uh, and to mentor them as practitioners in what I call sound work. Mm -hmm. So hopefully, as as the uh, as the dust settles, uh, I'll be able to introduce some of those practices in again. Currently, um, at at my studio here in Guelph, uh, gathering collectively is is. Um, tempered by the fact that we can only have 10 people socially distanced, wearing masks. So certain things can be accommodated and other things can't. Uh, I, but I am doing Zoom calls and uh, working in my training as a, as a counselor uh, and incorporating music in whatever ways I can. And it really speaks to that, uh, what we talked about earlier, that letting go of expectation and, and adaptability in like a, an improvising way. It kind of feels like that's what we need to do as, as practitioners, facilitators right now is, is how do we work with the notes that are already in this space right now and, and try to turn it into some sort of music. Um, maybe it's not the song we wish that we were playing, but it's the song that we're creating in the moment. Um, it sounds beautiful. And I personally, I've taken a little bit of your, your trainings before. And it, I remember getting some really deep insights into, again, not being able to speak too much to the science, but just from my experience of like, if you are in a state of feeling like you have no um, routine in your life, how settling some patterned music can feel 
or patterns sounding can feel, or when you feel like you need some grounding and you're all up in your head, how just like some deep vibration or like the sound of a heartbeat can just make you feel so nourished and connected with the earth. And again, without being able to speak to the science or pseudoscience, like I can really from mine and other people that I've spoken to as experience, it could be so powerful. Mm, yeah, I, I think there's a lot of literature out there these days uh, that that will back up exactly what you've said. You know, this is your brain on music is a, a, a typical example of how some of the institutes of learning are now beginning to have programs that blend uh, neurology uh, and the the art so that we understand what's lighting up in the brain for instance if a person has had uh, aphasia if they've had a stroke um, there are ways that they can gain their voice back through through singing there are practices um, in your field of expertise in terms of of drumming that can happen that can help a person who has lost ability on on the right or left side of their body. Mm. So yeah, it's a it's a great time to be uh, alive. There are programs, um, formal programs in community music and and music therapy in this region at uh, Laurier University, University of Windsor, McGill, and so forth. But there are also really uh, great workshops that people can plug into that give them a taste of their musical intelligence. And once you get a taste of that, it's like, yeah, once more of that in my life. For sure. And I can speak uh, from a personal experience. My wife's grandmother had three aneurysms and uh, we had her out to some of our drumming um, classes and all of the stuff that she was doing and you would never know the the way that she's still able to function and now she's in her 80s and she had her first one when she was in her 30s um, yeah. the way she's still able to function and and speak and relate to things it's it's fascinating and it's all a test to uh, she likes her puzzles and everything but also yeah. the music side of the thing that came into it so yeah. can definitely speak to that in the last like couple minutes um, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about your books and how if people want to learn more about your journey and and if they're captivated by your way with words, how they could uh, find those as well. Well, thanks for giving me that little opportunity and, and plug. I appreciate that. Uh, everything's available on Amazon. So whether you're listening uh, uh, in the UK or here in North America, amazon.uk.ca com, etc. has them. Uh, the first book that I'd recommend relative to what you and I are sharing, Jason, would be Tuning the Eardrums, Listening as a Mindful Practice, uh, because that really is an in-depth look, as you were saying, as to um, the science of sound and the uh, journey that I went through uh, connecting with that. Uh, the second book is much more evocative and was actually called Invocations, Poems for the Air and Ear. And I loved poetry for people to speak out loud or for us to set uh, music to it. And so it really comes from that tradition of the bardic tradition of, of um, the power of word and sound together. Mm. Um, the last one that just came out a few months ago is called Slow Dancing in Fast Times, and that's my first approach at a novel. Um, I found that because of my musical experiences in my uh, late teens and in the time of the late uh, 60s, that I met so many rich characters and I had such lived experience that I wanted to put that together, not so much in a biographical way, but in a way that captures almost like an amalgam of some of these characters that were larger than life in my own um, upbringing. So it's set in that tumultuous time of the late 60s, uh, a group of musicians in the Windsor, Detroit area, um, start creating a scene that's based on exactly what you and I've been talking about, the, the ability to 
catalyze audience into participants so that they become a part of what is is happening and that period of of time uh was very experimental musically so uh that hence why i put it in in the period of the late 60s amazing and uh, beyond the books if people wanted to find out more about you is there a website facebook page yeah, uh, there's a terribly out of date uh, website. <laughs> Probably all of us have in our great to do list upgrade yeah. the, the website. So that's one of my uh, things, my dangling participle. Um, yeah, that's just uh, www.garydiggins.com. And I, I keep a presence on, on Facebook. So befriend me, as, as we say. Yeah. Perfect. Well, thank you so much, Gary. This has been a great conversation. I, I've been missing our interactions again. Yeah, me too. Everything's been closed down. So thank you so much. And I wish you the most amazing day. Yeah. And a deep bow of appreciation for all that you and Lauren are providing uh, during these uh, difficult and different times to, to really maintain a, a space where people can foster their well-being. So kudos to you both. Thank you so much. 